Take your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's so hard for me to believe that I'm saying 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I've enjoyed preaching through a number of books, but I don't know that I've ever enjoyed one any more than 2 Corinthians. Such deep, rich, useful, practical stuff. Just so good. And this passage is certainly no exception. Let's read the first ten verses in 2 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What a great, encouraging passage. Paul has made quite a defense of his ministry already in this letter, touching really on so many different themes already. He had, back in chapter 2, this beautiful illustration of a gospel parade, a gospel triumph, much likened to the Roman triumph when a general came back from winning a war. You may recall that. I, I, I certainly hope so. I think we all greatly enjoyed the richness of chapter 3 with Paul's explanation of new covenant ministry. And then in chapter 4, he used that illustration of a jar of clay, a piece of cracked pottery. In our day, it would be like a plastic grocery bag to explain God working through us as broken instruments to reach other people. What a beautiful picture. Last week, we closed out chapter 5, where Paul explained with perfect clarity what mission work, which he termed the ministry of reconciliation, what that looks like. Now remember, there were some in the church doubting Paul, suspicious of his apostolic credentials. And they were following, or at least were considering whether to follow, the false teachers that had infiltrated the church in Corinth. Well, to deny Paul was to deny Christ's ambassador. 
To deny Paul then was to reject God, really, and God's teaching. That's the equivalent of people today who only believe the parts of the Bible that they like and rip the rest out or at least say, well, that that part isn't inspired. That's just Paul's opinion. And so Paul tells them in verse 20 of chapter 5, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, if you're going to serve God, you must listen to His messenger. You must listen to the one through whom God is working. In this case, Paul. Then in one of the most pregnant sentences in all the Bible, Paul closes out chapter 5 by saying, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, Luther called it. Our sin was imputed to Christ as He hung on the cross, and His righteousness is imputed to our account. And we're actually declared here to be the righteousness of God. And this text before us does not let up. We're not changing gears. Paul continues this defense of his ministry, describing some of the afflictions that he faced and how he persevered through those afflictions. That is a mark of a true servant of Christ. The name of my sermon this morning is Gospel-Shaped Ministry. Gospel-Shaped Ministry. And in this passage, Paul views ministry from two contrasting points of view. The old way and the new way. From the perspective of the world and from the perspective of God-given faith. You might have picked up on that as we read through this text. So Paul begins here in verse 1. He says, Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now before we get too far, I want to note that... a Common translation by most every English translation is a bit interpretive here. And by that I mean almost every English translation you've ever heard of and several you probably have not (laughs) ever heard of. The words with Him are not actually in the Greek. And yet, I checked English translation after English translation after English translation, and they all add it in there as if it's in the the original. Some go so far as to render it as God's co-workers, like the NIV, for instance, or the, the New Living Translation, as God's partners. Now, listen, those are most certainly interpreted because the Greek word theos, from which we get our English word God, is absolutely absent from the underlying Greek text. Now, admittedly, that may be what Paul is saying here. We are God's fellow workers. He did at least say back in chapter 5, verse 20, God is making His appeal through us. So maybe that's what Paul is saying. However, there are, there is another way to approach this text. And there are a few outlier translations that stop short of interpreting here. They just translate what the Greek says. For instance, Robert Young's literal translation renders this text, and working together also, we call upon you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. And working together. Not with Him, 
Not with God, but just working together. That is what the Greek says. And he leaves the interpretation then to the Bible student where it should be left, in my opinion, though I'm certainly not a Greek scholar. Paul could be saying that he worked together with other laborers like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. Paul could be saying we are working together as God's laborers or even as apostles. Certainly he's defending his apostolic ministry in this book. He could be saying that. He could even be saying we are working together as in he and the church in Corinth. The net translation which is often interpretive, actually renders this verse very well. Now, because we are fellow workers, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I don't want to make a bigger deal than this than it, than it actually is. I really don't. But the we at the end of this verse may very well be the people working together in the first half of the verse. Like, that certainly, that certainly makes sense. Well, whether Paul is saying God is working with us or we are all working together, his message is not left in doubt. Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, not to reveal, not to receive it uselessly. The grace of God, no doubt, is another way of referring to the message of reconciliation that we have just studied. I know we, we tend to ignore the fact that this is all part of the same context because there's a big six there in our chapter that makes it look like Paul's starting a completely different thought. But that's not what's going on here at all. When Paul says the grace of God, he is referring to the gospel, the message of reconciliation. It's quite doubtful that Paul believed that the majority of these people were unsaved. It's unlikely that Paul thought most of them were actually lost. He spent a year and a half with these people. He does, though, seem very concerned about their fruitfulness. Very concerned. That will become more clear as we work through this book. But it does seem he had concerns about some of these people, that some of them actually were interested enough in Christianity and maybe enjoyed the fellowship and perhaps the fried chicken that all good churches have for the fellowship meal, but they didn't really care a whole lot about Jesus. Then he says in verse 2, for, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's his quote from the Old Testament. Then Paul adds, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul quotes the Old Testament here. And listen. When New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they do us a major favor because they do not misquote and misuse and twist and make them say things that the Bible does not say like we see in pulpit after pulpit today. They aren't snatching things out of context and making them talk about something altogether different from what the writer intended. That's not what's going on. By the way, it's one of the reasons that that the elders here believe it's not only useful for us to preach through the Old Testament, but necessary for us to preach through the Old Testament if we're going to faithfully execute the office that you've appointed us to. So Paul quotes Isaiah 49 verse 8. And he quotes it verbatim. Word for word. But not from the Hebrew. 
from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. That's interesting. These would have been Greek-speaking believers, so he used their Bible. The immediate context of Isaiah 49 is the second of four servant songs in Isaiah. Passages that directly speak of Messiah, Jesus. This is the Father's response to the Son. Notice he says here in this quote, I have listened to you, or I have answered you. So the Son has asked something, and the Father is responding to that. John MacArthur says, quote, Messiah is represented as asking for the grace of God to be given to sinners, end quote. Amen. That's precisely the work of Messiah. Not the only work, certainly, but the primary work. In fact, back in Isaiah 49 verse 6, here's what is said to Messiah from God. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The nation of Israel was always intended to be a light to the nations, but that is rooted in the work of Jesus alone. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the greater son of David. So this day of salvation referred to here seems to refer to the time that we may call now. I know that seems odd, but that's the way that Paul uses it. We live in an age where the gospel of Jesus, the message of reconciliation, has been sent out by Jesus through His ambassadors to the nations, just like Isaiah spoke about. And so Paul uses this text in Isaiah 49 with clear meaning for Israel, and he applies the truth of it here in 2 Corinthians. Again, he's not misusing the text. He's not changing the text. He is rightly interpreting the text and then applying the text. It's beautifully the way that the Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament. And he speaks to those who may have found Christianity interesting, but did not truly believe that Jesus was their only hope and salvation. And Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't look over that little word, behold. Paul is calling their attention to something very important. And he uses it twice here. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And there is nothing wrong with pressing people when you share the gospel with them explaining that our lives are short windows of opportunity to receive Christ by faith. Paul says, now is the favorable time, but you don't know when you're going to leave this world. Your now may end this afternoon. We don't know. At this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, awaiting that time when His enemies will be made His footstool. And his ambassadors have been dispersed around the globe to preach the gospel to the nations. And so Paul says, now is the favorable time. Now is the time that you should believe the gospel. Now you may be thinking, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like some liberal just using scare tactics to you know, pull a profession of faith out of anybody. Well, look, I assure you, I don't want that either. 
But these are God's words. This is the Apostle Paul here warning someone of the short amount of time that they have in this life and the consequences of leaving this life without having believed in Jesus, that's not a liberal approach. That's a very conservative approach. That's that's the Bible. That's what we are to preach. All right, let's move on. Paul says here in verse 3, as he begins to describe his ministry, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul really is describing what pastoral ministry should look like. But remember, pastoral ministry should merely reflect what all believers should be minus the teaching. Like the qualifications in in 1 Timothy and Titus are qualifications that every Christian should meet minus the ability to teach. Well, Paul is then explaining why these saints in Corinth should follow him and be Christ's ambassador. Borrowing from those qualification passages, Paul essentially says that he is above reproach. That's quite a statement. And look, Paul put every effort into reaching people in various cultures. It's hard for us in a world where our culture is southern United States. You know, we, we know the culture. Somebody comes in from Illinois and, whew, we don't know what to think about them because they don't, they don't know the culture. But Paul knew what it meant to, to reach people in culture. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. End quote. Paul was willing to sacrifice Paul for others. Now look, I am certain Paul did things other people didn't like. There's there's no question. This letter is written as a defense of Paul's ministry because some of these people were offended by Paul's physical presence, his actions when he was there with them in person. He offended some of these people. Paul did things that other people did not like. That's not what he's talking about. There are people in this world that it is literally impossible to please them. I don't care how hard you may try. So Paul is not saying he never offended anybody. For instance, in in liberty issues, there are often two choices in which you have to choose one or the other and the other group is going to be offended by whatever you choose. If he had been in Rome, for instance, did he observe the day in honor of the Lord or did he not observe the day in honor of the Lord one of those two opposing sides was not going to agree with him. I mean, it's, it's impossible not to offend somebody sometime. But what Paul means here 
is that he lived a life in which he followed biblical instructions. That's what Paul means. He did what Scripture demanded. Someone may say, well, look, I don't like the way Paul dresses. Okay. Well, that's not anything the Bible addresses. So, so what? God's not judging Paul over something he didn't inspire. Paul didn't worry about those things. That's just tradition. That's not Bible. I'm certain Paul was falsely accused because Jesus was falsely accused based on the tradition of the religious leaders among him and his ministry. But when examined according to Scripture, Paul lived a life in which no fault could be found with his ministry. And in this, he sought to please God, not men. And he says in verses 4 and 5, We could spend weeks looking at this list. We're not, but we could. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Paul's troubles in ministry actually commend him as a true servant of God. In other words, Paul endured through trials and tribulations because he knew what he was preaching was true. Great endurance here, by great endurance it says, great endurance seems to be sort of like a general heading in these two verses. And then he offers nine examples of what he endured through. Again, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on each one of these. We'd be here all day. Most of them are pretty easy to understand. They can be broken down into three sets of threes. We'll look at them that way. Afflictions, hardships, calamities. These are all three just general terms. They generally describe difficult times. You could use them synonymously. The next three, though, are a bit more specific. Beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Now, over in chapter 11, Paul writes, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Eight agonizing beatings. Most likely all public. Paul was often arrested, it seems, imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know from the book of Acts, as as we work through that book, we will see it. Riots often occurred in response to Paul's preaching. Even in Corinth, for example, in Acts 18, we see there where the Jews rioted against Paul. They went to Gallio, the tribunal there, and they complained about Paul's ministry. He did nothing to the Apostle Paul, and so they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. That's a riot that went on there in Corinth. So they would have known what Paul was speaking about. It says here that Paul labored, not only in ministry, but oftentimes as necessary, in manual labors. And because of that, he experienced sleepless nights. And Paul was often hungry. These are nine examples of 
trials in ministry in which Paul endured. He just kept on keeping on. If his message was not true, he had every reason to quit. And no doubt would have. But Paul knew he had actually met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and so he pressed on and preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because he knew it was true. Then in verse 6 he says, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Despite the trials that Paul endured, he retained moral integrity. Represented by the descriptions here in these two verses. Ethical qualities, we may call them. He he mentions first here, purity. It almost certainly describes Paul's motives. Not only among the saints at Corinth, but... In this context, especially among the saints at Corinth, knowledge, he mentions, or perhaps understanding, Paul was relaying the right message to the people. He was preaching the truth. No doubt much unlike the false teachers that had weaseled their way into the church at Corinth. Paul was a patient man. That's an attribute he actually exhibits in writing this letter to these people. Paul exhibited patience. H.A. Ironside writes, quote, Nothing so shows a man out of fellowship with God as a bad temper. End quote. That's pretty heavy. But Paul wasn't that. Paul was patient. And he was kind. Not, not some kind of in-your-face jerk that took every opportunity to slam people. No, Paul was kind. John MacArthur may have given the simplest definition of kindness I've ever seen, and yet it's rich. He says kindness is, quote, goodness in action. End quote. I like that. That makes sense. I know I've said it before, but many Christians live as though they were baptized in pickle juice. Like they have some sort of score to settle believing that their abrasiveness is a mark of Christian maturity, when in fact, it's the mark of immaturity. Peter, in describing Jesus, writes, when He, Jesus, was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. And so we see here, Paul walking in the footsteps of the Savior Himself, following the example of Jesus. It almost seems out of place then that Paul lists this next quality here, this this description. He just says, the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not not really a description of of us specifically. We, we, We aren't the Holy Spirit, but Paul is really just admitting that all these attributes that he possesses here are supernatural. They're flowing from the work of the Holy Spirit. We know, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. By the way, self-control, just compare that to what you see going on in the churches where they claim to have more of the Holy Spirit than we get. It's the opposite of self-control. Anyway, 
I think you can see in Galatians 5 the similarities with what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians. Then he says he had genuine love. Not feigned love. Not not putting on a show so he could collect money from people like the false teachers were doing. No, Paul genuinely loved people. Truthful speech certainly refers to Paul's preaching and teaching. The power of God could refer to these apostolic signs or they could simply refer to God giving the increase, God being the one behind the preaching, God blessing what Paul was saying. And then Paul ends this list by stating, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. This is not uncommon in the apostles' writing. He he oftentimes uses military language to speak of the Christian life. The most notable obviously being Ephesians chapter 6 and that passage that Paul uses the, the, the armor of a Roman soldier to describe the armor of the believer, the armor of God. Here, he speaks of using weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. This is interesting because a Roman soldier back in this day would have been trained to hold his sword in his right hand and his shield in his left. So he had had both an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon. In Christian life, this is, by the way, this is represented in Ephesians 6 as well. If you go study there, we need both offensive weapons and defensive weapons. This doesn't mean we're to be offensive. That's not what I mean. But the gospel is what we put out as a weapon. And then we, we take the shield of faith, as he writes in Ephesians 6, and we protect ourselves from Satan's attacks. Paul was fully equipped to use both offensive and defensive weapons in serving Christ. He says in verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters, yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, We live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul experienced honor from those to whom the world, who viewed the world through new lenses. He, he, Experience dishonor from those with a natural worldview. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And people in those different states saved, lost. Belief, not belief. The old worldview... The unsaved people, the new worldview, saved people. Like Paul is expressing through these verses that those two groups viewed him in opposite ways. It seems clear then that Paul is playing off what he wrote in the previous text. We regard no one according to the flesh. And yet there were people who regarded Paul in just that way, according to the flesh. They saw him from a worldly point of view. They looked at Paul and saw somebody who was a miserable failure. And yet we look at Paul and we say, oh, he was very successful. 
Because we're looking at it through scriptural terms. We're, we're looking at it through new eyes. These two groups either slandered Him or praised Him based on their worldview. Based on whether the old had passed away and the new had come. And then in our text this morning, we end with these seven paradoxical statements. We, we're treated as something, but in reality we are this. Right? Notice, we are treated as imposters. No doubt referring to the critique of Paul by the false teachers and sadly even some of the saints in Corinth. Remember back in chapter 3, some had apparently asked Paul to offer some type of letters of recommendation. He responds by saying, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known by all. We're not an imposter. You should know we're not an imposter. Paul was a true servant of Jesus, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, called by Christ, equipped by Christ, sent by Christ. So he says we're treated as imposters, and yet we are true servants. He was unknown by the world, but he was well known by God. He was well known by God's children. Paul says he was dying. In fact, he was staring death in the face every single day. Literally. And yet he says, we live. Right? By, by God's grace, by God's sovereign protection, by God's providence, Paul continued to escape death at every turn. He was punished. Often severely, but he was not killed. That's, that's by God's sovereign plan. Paul was left on this earth in place to serve Christ. Paul had anxieties. That's what he means here when he says sorrowful, inner turmoil. Paul had Anxiety. In fact, later in this book he says he had anxiety for all the churches. He worried himself to death over them in a sense. He was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Even in those times of sorrow, he rejoiced in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the best example of this is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul wrote the letter to the saints in Philippi and most commentators would agree that the, the theme of that letter is joyfulness. And Paul wrote it from a prison cell. You see, he was, he was joyful even in the midst of sorrow. Paul was poor, never attaining his best life now. Maybe he needed to read Joel Osteen's book. I don't know. In reality, Joel needs to read Paul's book. Anyway, Paul was poor, and yet through his work, God made many rich. Not in eternal, I mean, not in, not in worldly things. Not in worldly prizes and toys, but eternal things. Look, you, may, you may die in this life with nothing in the bank, but if you die in Christ, you have everything. In fact, Paul says he had nothing 
No worldly possessions of his own, yet eternally he was an heir with Christ. Daniel actually says in Daniel 7, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Paul says, that's me. Right there. And if you know Jesus as your Savior by faith alone, today that is you too. Now, much of what Paul discusses here in these first ten verses of chapter 6, he will address again in chapter 11. And in some of these things, he's actually going to go into more detail. So I'm not going to go into all of the details today. But I will offer you this, just for you to think on in your spare time. It's actually quite interesting if you look at this passage and you compare it and the parallels it has with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to work through all of those because we don't have time this morning, but I I want to give you three examples. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Paul here says that he carried out his ministry in purity. You see, there's, there's a parallel there. Jesus said... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. While Paul says, we are treated as imposters. We are dishonored. We are slandered. Jesus says, Paul, you're blessed. The Lord said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul said, he was poor, yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. Look, the parallels between the Beatitudes and this passage here with Paul are just amazing, really. You get the point. Paul lived his life according to the teaching of Jesus, even following our Lord's example of suffering for the cause of the truth. That's Paul's life. One of the, one of the biggest problems, I think, in Christianity in America today, and Baptists are in no way exempt from this, is that we have a very consumer-driven mentality of church. In other words, we shop for a church the way we shop for a dishwasher or a car or a hat or a lawnmower. Paul, on the other hand, lived a gospel-shaped life. In other words, Paul looked for opportunities to serve other people. We need that. And he did that even when the cost was high. This list proves that. We most often look for ways in which the church can serve us. And then secondarily, others, if we ever even get to that point. And it results in poor attitudes and terrible reflections of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We feel persecuted if we share the gospel and it just results in someone not liking us. Boy, Paul's life would have been really easy if that's all he had to worry about. And listen, children, kids, young people, the pressure on you is probably heavier than it is on most of the older folks just because you are finding your way in the world. Some of us have experienced enough hard feelings at this point that we just come to expect it. 
But you're still learning about that. Look, if you want to serve Jesus, life may get tough. Go ahead and accept that now. But it's worth it. As we leave here today, representing the gospel to our friends and family, and that's why we leave, let us learn from the example of the Apostle Paul here in this passage. Kent Hughes writes this, quote, speaking of Paul, quote, In effect, his endurance declared that the gospel is true and that Jesus is worth it. End quote. Amen. Look, do, do our lives reflect that to those around us? Are we really going to live in the dumps the next week because our football team scored less points than the other football team? What does the world think about that? Jesus is alive. And that changes everything about today. I mean, I'd like our team to win, but I'm not going to lose sleep over that. Do we grasp for the same things that the world holds on to? Are we enamored by the same goals that the world has? Guys, look, when we walk out the door, you're not just representing this church. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That is so much better than a Bama fan. Or an Auburn fan. Or a Mississippi State fan. Or whatever people in Yankeeville... Look at. Listen, we need to take seriously that the Bible calls us ambassadors for Christ. Our attitudes, our lifestyles are more influential than we think. We need to model our lives after what we see here in this text from Paul. And if we do, that means we will have a gospel shaped ministry.